Sunday. Usually I preach for four hours, and um, I'm kidding. <coughs> uh, and people fall asleep and fall out the windows like they did in Acts. But uh, uh, no, uh, but it is a little different. And with that being a little bit different, I kind of warned you all last week kind of where we were going, and everybody's asking where are we going. And um, uh, uh, this week we're obviously going to be looking at the book of Nehemiah, and then uh, next week is... Uh, Sanctity of Life Sunday, and then after that, we're going to start a series about four to six weeks on on, on uh, the basics or just some foundational things of Christianity. And then we're going to teach you the Book of Philippians. So that's kind of where we're going. To remind all of you, and uh, if you have not done so, you heard we're going to be in the Book of Nehemiah. So get your Bibles out or your um, electronic device that has a Bible on it, and turn to the Book of Nehemiah. And the Book of Nehemiah is between Esther and. Uh, between Ezra and Esther. Now, that may not tell you anything either. So if you go to Job, which is right before Psalms, turn left a couple of books, and you will run into this neat book of Nehemiah. Uh, and the title of our message this morning is Nehemiah, a tool in the hand of God. A tool in the hand of God. And uh, I really do want to encourage you to grab a Bible because we are, a, we are going to be looking, as always, at God's Word. But we're going to be looking at a lot of places here, and I want you to have that in front of you. So let me pray before uh, we dive in here. Uh, Lord, again, we come to you, and we got a lot of things going on in our lives, personally, uh, corporately. Uh, th- some things that are joyous occasions like the birth of a newborn baby as Clint and Tammy gave, uh, Tammy gave birth to a little boy, Lincoln Piper, yesterday. And Lord, thank you for the gift of life. And thank you for Clint and Tammy and their what they mean to our body and how you're using them in the Denton area and for blessing them with this little boy. Uh, and there's joyous occasions, Lord, and we thank you for those. And Lord, there's also occasions that call, that, that cause us to stop in our tracks that bring grief and sadness and questions and pain um, like cancer and uh, Lord I, I pray for the Bundick family and pray that you would uh, bring healing to Jason's mom and uh, may uh, Lord either through the the use of doctors and the wisdom you've given them or Lord just divinely heal her um, without all that well, that's our prayer but through it all Lord I pray that you would encourage her encourage her family comfort them and Lord even as Jared was saying Lord and I know their family knows this but Lord uh, even in the calamities of life Lord you have a purpose or may they drink that purpose to its full and realize all of the good purposes you have in this for them and Lord as we uh, look at Nehemiah this morning Lord whatever wherever we're coming from Lord I pray that you would prepare our hearts to hear your word and Lord, you would meet us right where we are, not just as a body as we look at our strategic ministry initiatives and all of that, but Lord, individually. Um, uh, Lord, I pray that you would minister to us as only you can. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, as you just heard, we heard the, the strategic ministry plan and for 2014, and a lot of you may be thinking, all right, where do I fit in? Where do I fit into this, this plan? Or maybe you're thinking, how are we going to accomplish all this? That's a lot of stuff. How's that all going to happen? Uh, maybe you're thinking to yourself, uh, that just seems like too much. Some of it's just kind of unrealistic. Some of it doesn't really excite me all that much. Well, I understand why you would be thinking some of those things. At least I understand why you'd be thinking some of those things. But 
uh, let me assure that everyone here has a part to play. Let me say that again. Everyone here has a part to play. One more time. Everyone here has a part to play in this. I also want to assure you that there is and there will be a plan to accomplish these things in the strength of the Lord, obviously. It's not too much, and it's not unrealistic. So, maybe you're asking the question. Maybe you're not, but I'm going to ask it anyway. How then do we proceed? How, how do we proceed? How do we move forward? Well, I'm glad you asked. Or if you didn't ask, I asked for you. All right? The purpose statement of, of, of Grace Bible Church is really just a... a um, Stating the Great Commission in another way. The purpose of the church is what? To make disciples. I did a nine-week series on that. Ten weeks, actually. Um, this past spring and, and last year in the spring. And um, we, we need to know that. That's what it is. So we basically sum up that um, with this statement. Grace Bible Church exists as a family directed by God's word to exalt God in everything, equip one another for ministry, and evangelize the lost. And that's basically the Great Commission. That's what we're called to do as a local body. Uh, that's how you make, go about making disciples. Now I want to direct your attention to one particular phrase in this purpose statement. Directed by God's word. Directed by God's word. Everything we do is to be directed by God's word. And not by our collective thoughts necessarily. Or the wisdom of the world, but by God's word. It's our source of truth and provides direction on how we can be rightly related with God, how we can be rightly related with each other, and how in the world we can fulfill these strategic ministry initiatives, which their whole purpose is for us to be more effective at making disciples. If we lose that, if we lose sight of that, none of this means anything. Us meeting together means nothing. If we lose sight that our purpose as a church is to make disciples. But we've got to do it as we're directed by God's word. We have been, we will be, we uh, continually directed by his word. And this morning, we want to be directed by his word through the book of Nehemiah. Now, I'm going to do something here this morning I've never, ever done before here at Grace. Uh, here in a couple weeks, I'll, I'll be been here 11 years. And I'm going to do something this morning I've never, ever, ever done. I'm going to teach through a whole book in one message. There's doubters, I know. <laughs> After 77 messages in the Gospel of John, I know there's doubters. And 103 in the book of Genesis, I know there's doubters. I'm going to do the book of Nehemiah um, this morning. I know you're thinking either it's going to be a long time or he's going to summarize. I am going to summarize. All right, let me uh, rest, rest, be rested, just, just rest your fears there that I am not going to do verse by verse uh, through the book of Nehemiah this morning. Maybe another time I'll come back and get it all, but... Um, I'm going to show you why Nehemiah is important in the big picture of the grand story that is the Bible. Why Nehemiah is here, why it's important, and how it relates to us today. And after pointing out some key principles and key truths in the book of Nehemiah and, and kind of sharing the story of the book of Nehemiah, I'm going to come back and I'm going to point to seven, there's way more than seven, but just seven principles in Nehemiah to follow in fulfilling God's purpose for his church. All right, but before we, we look at Nehemiah, it's important for us to know and be reminded where Nehemiah fits in the big picture. 
We need to know this so we can understand Nehemiah. And it begins, the big picture begins in Genesis 3.15. And I know you all have heard this before, but let me, let's, let's just review it. And I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your seed and her seed, and he shall bruise you on the head, and you shall bruise him on the heel. Now uh, this is the curse. This is after uh, the, the sin has come in to mankind, and this is God speaking to the serpent, speaking to Satan. And he says that he will put enmity... Right, there'll be war between you, the serpent, and the woman. And he gets more specific. And between your seed, so not necessarily that woman, but her seed, her offspring, and her, your seed and her seed, all right? He, oh, the seed is getting more defined. Personal male pronoun. He will bruise you on the head and you shall bruise him on the heel. Obviously, a bruise or a wound to the head is fatal one to the heel is not. It's bothersome, but it's not completely fatal. We, here we find God's promise of redemption to his people. In the midst of sin, God gives hope in Genesis 3.15. One day, I'm going to send one. Personal masculine pronoun. An offspring of the woman here that will crush the serpent. Crush Satan and sin. And the power of sin, and the presence of sin, and the penalty of sin. I'm going to send one who's going to do that. Now, if you've ever heard this before, we know who that's speaking about. And maybe you've never heard it before and you're thinking, oh, that sounds very familiar to some guy named Jesus. That's exactly right. This purpose, this promise, this plan that God made here in Genesis 3.15 was ultimately fulfilled and is being fulfilled in the death resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's the seed here. This is the first promise of the gospel. It's called in theological cir circles of proto-evangelion, the first gospel. And after God makes this promise in Genesis 3, he continually shows he's committed to keeping his promise throughout the rest of the Bible. If you understand this principle, you can understand the rest of the Bible. But if you don't understand this principle and this plan and this promise that God has given in Genesis 3.15, you'll never understand any of the Bible. Because this is what it's about. Um, now, I know some of you here this morning don't enjoy history. You, can, you may even want to lift your hand. Oh, I don't like history. All right? Um, I don't like history. I just really don't enjoy it. Never enjoyed it in school. All those kind of things. Maybe that's what you're thinking. I didn't enjoy it that much in school. I enjoy it way more now because I understand the importance of it. And I really understand the importance of understanding history in the Bible so we make sure we understand where it is in the history and where it is in the big picture. And if we don't understand the history behind Nehemiah and how we got here, then we're never going to understand God, what God wants us to know about Nehemiah. So, with that said, let me give you a great quote by Chuck Swindoll. Trying to study and appreciate Nehemiah without a, a knowledge of this transitional period of history would be like visiting Old Concord Bridge in Massachusetts or the Liberty Bell in Philadelphia with no knowledge of the Revolutionary War. Now, some of you are probably thinking, I missed that part in history. <laughs> All right? And, uh, but you, don't under, you can't understand because these, those have to do with the Revolutionary War. And, and, and you, to appreciate that bridge and the bell, you, you, you have to understand the Revolutionary War. And in a greater way to understand Nehemiah, you have to understand the history around it. So I'm going to show you. You know, I, I said I was only going to teach through one book this morning. I'm actually going to teach through the whole Old Testament this morning. All right, you ready? Here we go. Now, hopefully you can see this. This is uh, 
<clears throat> but uh, here is the timeline. So we began in Genesis 3.15 with this promise. And I told you God is committed to keeping his promise. He has a plan to keep his promise of the seed who will crush the serpent's head, the savior of the word, world, the person, Jesus, who is the Messiah. All right, so you see there that my timeline starts in 2000 BC, and, and that's around the time of Abraham comes on the scene in Genesis chapter 12. God makes this promise to Abraham that through your descendants, I'm going to bless all the nations. And he's pointing to, I'm going to bring the Messiah who will bring blessing to all the nations through you, Abraham. And then you, you, you see on there, you, you, you see Joseph comes along. Of course, Abraham had Isaac, who had Jacob, who had 12 sons. One of them was Joseph. His brothers didn't like him. They thought he was a little arrogant, a little mama's boy. So we're going to sell him to Egypt. They sell him to Egypt. He gets to Egypt comes second command. He saves basically the whole world in a sense from famine because of the wisdom God gave him. And he brings his family, and that's an amazing story as we looked in Genesis about that, to Egypt. And, and they find themselves in Egypt. And, and that's Genesis 37 through 50 is where that takes place. And they're in, in bondage, end up being in bondage after this. In Exodus, we find them in bondage. They've been 400 years in bondage, the nation of Israel to the Egyptians because they get too many. They got so many and then the Egyptians got scared and they put them as slaves. Well then we have the book of Exodus and uh, you, you have uh, Moses comes in there and it's, I don't have that up here but that's the very next thing is Exodus and Moses and God delivers the people out of Egypt through Moses through some amazing signs and wonders and uh, that put down their little puny gods and lift up the great God um, the one true God and after that you have Joshua and what happens in the first half of the book, Joshua conquers the land. All right, I just I can't put everything up here, okay? You're looking for Joshua, right? But you see Joshua and Judges here next, Exodus, Joshua, okay? And then he conquers the land in the first half of the book of Joshua. They divide the land in the second half of the book of Joshua. That's Joshua. All right, then we come to this time of Judges. Oh, boy. Not a good time. Everybody did what was right in their own eyes. And here's what happened. They, they, they felt pretty good about what they were doing in the land. And they began to get complacent. They began walking away from God. And God sends another nation to bring judgment and discipline on, on his people. And they're like, whoa, God, I don't want any of that. Help, please, we repent. Please send one, some, someone to help. And he sends a judge. And you have this whole list of judges. And this is a cycle that happens. Sin, it's, it's, it's complacency, sin, repentance, God sends a judge. And this happens all the way through judges. And even at the end of judges, it's still everybody doing what's right in their own eyes. They can't learn anything. It's just over and over again. Sounds like me. Often I just keep doing the same thing and God keeps bringing discipline. He keeps loving me and that's what he was doing in the book of Judges. Well, then after the book of Judges, you, around, around 1000 BC, you have this, they cry out, they want a king. We want a king. Uh, Samuel, who was the last judge um, and also a prophet, uh, he, he's upset and God says, hey, they're not rejecting you, Samuel, they're rejecting me. I'm supposed to be their king, but they don't want me. They want a king that looks just like everybody else. So they get a king. This is called the United Kingdom. And the first king was, help me here, what was his name? Starts with an S. Tall, dark, and handsome, just like they wanted him. He looked like all the rest of the kings. He also had a heart like the rest of the kings. And it showed up really quickly. God rejected his king. And the second king was David, right? David was a man after God's own heart. Was he sinless? No, he wasn't sinless. In fact, he sinned big time. But he was a man after God's heart. And I think the reason he's called that is because he was a man of repentance. He understood his sin. He repented of his sin. And then after David, he had a son named Solomon. All right? Solomon started off pretty good, and then he kind of began to veer. And then when Solomon dies, the, the kingdom divides. You see up there the divided kingdom, 931 B.C. 
Solomon comes on, then he dies, and then you have it divides into two different kingdoms. The northern kingdom, which was called Israel, and the capital was Samaria. The southern kingdom was called Judah. Two tribes, ten tribes in the northern kingdom. The southern kingdom, which was called Judah, the capital of Jerusalem, uh, um, was two tribes. And this, this, you had this divided kingdom. Uh, then in, then the, the kingdoms take off. The, the, the northern kingdom had all bad kings and one bad queen. All of them were bad. All were evil and they walked away from God. And God kept sending prophets. Here's the prophets. I'm teaching the whole Old Testament. The prophets come along. I'm see prophets saying, hey, you better repent or God's bringing judgment. He's going to bring discipline on you. They don't listen. So guess what happens in 722 B.C.? The Assyrians come in and they take captive. They actually rip out the whole nation. There's no longer a nation of Israel. The northern kingdom. There's no longer a northern kingdom. They rip them out. Spread them all over the place and make them slaves. And they intermarry with all their people. And now there's no longer the nation of Israel. In fact, meaning the, the, the northern kingdom at all. Where you'd think the southern kingdom would look, hey, our brothers up north, they didn't repent. God sends kings, uh, some good, some bad in the southern kingdom. There were some good ones there. Josiah is my favorite. Just so you want to know that, you can write that down. Josiah is our pastor's favorite. But he, go read about him. All right? Um, but, but there's some good ones, some bad ones. And God sends prophets at this time too saying you better repent you better repent or I'm going to sing judgment and guess what they didn't learn from their neighbors to the north they don't so in 586 BC which was actually the third wave actually came in 605 597 and then 586 BC uh, the Babylonians who had conquered the Assyrians come in and they destroy knock the temple down the walls are broken down destroy the, the Jerusalem and take the, 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 these Jewish people into captivity to Babylon. Um, it's a sad time in the nation of Israel. Well, guess what happens? The Medo-Persian Empire conquers the Babylonians. And God had promised a long time ago, yeah, I'm going to ha- take you out of the land, but 70 years later, I'll bring you back and you'll rebuild the temple. 538, the first wave of Israelites come back. And then in 516, exactly 70 years from 586, they rebuild the temple. God keeps his promise. Here they are back in the land. They've rebuilt the temple. And then five, uh, 458 B.C., Ezra returns. And, uh, um, and then 445 B.C., Nehemiah returns. And fi- and, 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 but he returns because he hears that the walls are not rebuilt. The gates are burned down. The people in distress. And Nehemiah, they rebuild the walls. There you go. The whole Old Testament right there. How long was that? That's like a record. All right? That's the whole Old Testament. I used to think they do the whole New Testament next week, and we don't have to come back the rest of the year, right? <laughs> Just kidding. Uh, well, it's important for us to know that through all of this, God has a plan. He's made a promise, and he's going to keep this promise from Genesis 3.15. Actually, from all eternity, the promise is there. We find out later in the book of Revelation. It's from all eternity. But from Genesis 3.15, where he makes it known to us, he's going to keep this promise. He's going to send a seed. He's going to send the Messiah to save people from their sin. It's also important for us to know that God uses people to keep his promises. He uses people, and you see that all throughout the scripture, that he uses people to accomplish his, accomplish his plan. Well, why is the book of Nehemiah important? The walls of Nehemiah are rebuilt. Listen to this. Thus protecting the Jewish nation that exists at the time. Now, there's some people still scattered, but the majority of them are there. Protecting the Jewish nation through which the promised seed will come. You think Nehemiah is an important, uh, important book? 
These walls God is using to protect his promise that will come a little bit over 400 years later. That's the 400 years of silence you might hear of from the Old Testament and New Testament. And then here he comes on the scene. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Jesus. The promise is here. That's why Nehemiah is important. Because he protected his promise through those walls and through those people. It's a great book. Well, I'm going to now do this overview of Nehemiah. Uh, hopefully as quickly as I did the whole Old Testament. All right? And I'm going to highlight some key verses, and I'm going to come back and point out those seven principles I talked about. Before I do that, let me just say this. Nehemiah was a tool in the hand of God. Nehemiah was a tool in the hand of God. Are you? Are you a tool in the hand of God? Or will you be a tool in the hand of God? Let's begin by looking at chapter 1. Hopefully you got Nehemiah still opened up there. He's flipped to you in your phone, your iPad, your uh, the other devices that aren't Mac, whatever they are. Um, but look there in verses 1 through 3 of chapter 1. Let me read these for you to begin our study here in the book of Nehemiah. The words of Nehemiah, the son of Hakaliah. Now it happened in the month of Chiselov, which is like January, in the 20th year, speaking of the 20th year of Artaxerxes the king, while I was in Susa, the capital, that Hananiah, one of my brothers, and some men from Judah came and asked him, and I asked him concerning the Jews who had escaped and had surveyed uh, the captivity about Jerusalem. They said to me, the remnant there is the, in the province who survived the captivity are in great distress and reproach, and the wall of Jerusalem is broken down and its gates are burned with fire. So these guys come from Jerusalem. He's still in Susa, the capital of the, empire, of the, of the Persian Empire at the time, um, serving as a cupbearer to the king. And they come and he says, hey, what's going on? And he gets some news and it's not good news. The, the gates are burned down. The walls are still broken down. And, and the fact that the walls are broken down means the city is vulnerable to the attacks of enemies. And we learn from Ezra, this is interesting, Ezra was a book right before this, Ezra chapter 4, that they were rebuilding the walls, and then some, some Samaritans that got real upset about this go to the king and said, King Artaxerxes, these, these, these people that are, that are there, this was between the time of 516 to... When Ezra comes, I mean, when, when Ezra comes and then Nehemiah eventually comes on the scene, they, they begin to rebuild the walls a little bit. And the Samaritans say, hey, they're rebelling. So Artaxerxes says, uh-uh, no rebelling. No more rebuilding of the walls. We're done. So he puts out a decree. He says, unless I change that, no more rebuilding of the walls. And uh, so how does... Nehemiah respond to this bad news that the walls are, are broken down and, and, and they're susceptible to enemies and, and they can't rebuild them. Well, look at verse 4. When I heard these words, I sat down and wept and mourned for days and I was fasting and praying before the God of heaven. What's he do? He prays. And the rest of the chapter is a prayer and I encourage you to study that later. It's an amazing prayer. Look what his prayer contains mostly of. It's not about him. It's about God and about God's purposes. Let me just throw that out there, a little extra on prayer. All right? It's amazing. But he praises his response. This leads us to chapter 2, and, and I want you to look really at the last phrase of chapter 1. I'm going to read down through verse 6 of chapter 2. Now I was a cupbearer to the king. He was poison control. All right? That's what his job was. 
And there in verse 1 in chapter 2, And it came about in the month of Nisan, in the, the 20th year of King Artaxerxes, that wine was before him, and I took up the wine and gave it to the king. Now I had not been sad in his presence. So the king said to me, Why is your face sad, though you are not sick? This is nothing but sadness of heart. Then I was af- very much afraid. I said to the king, uh, Stop right there. I was very much afraid. To be sad in the presence of the king was not a good thing. Because he may take your sadness as being sad to be working for the king. And if that happened, often they would just take your life off with the head or whatever else they might do. So there's reason he's fearful. Because the king knows he's sad, and, 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 um, but he couldn't help it. Why couldn't he help it? He loved the Lord. He loved his people so much. He just showed all over him. He was concerned of what's going on at home, his real home in Jerusalem. Now we're at verse 3. I said to the king, let the king live forever. Why should my face not be sad when the city, the place of my father's tombs, lies desolate and its gates have been consumed by fire? Then the king said to me, what would you request? So I prayed to the God of heaven. I said to the king, if it please the, the king, if your servant has found favor before you, send me to Judah, to the city of my father's tombs, that I may rebuild it. Then the king said to me. We'll come back to that in just a second. So here he is. He, he, he knew of this previous decree that Artaxerxes had made. He was there. When he already knew that Artaxerxes said, no more rebuilding of the walls. And yet, he doesn't let that stop him. So he brings it up. Which could also have been seen as what? An act of rebellion or treason against the king. But he does not keep that allow that to keep from him doing what's right. Nehemiah acts with courage in the face of tremendous adversity, in the face of his life. He acts with courage. And then back to verse 6, then the king said to me, the queen sitting beside him, how long uh, will your journey be? Speaking to Nehemiah, and when will you return? So it pleased the king to send me, and I gave him a definite time. Well, the king sends him. And the rest of the chapter records Nehemiah going. He goes to Jerusalem. And, and he assesses the situation. And he calls the people to action. And then at the end of that cha- cha- the, 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 uh, chapter, they face opposition. And we just saw this verse. Brandon just showed us this verse. Oops. Well, I want you to see it in your Bible. Sorry, sorry about that. 2.18. Um, Look what it says. I told them how the hand of my God had been favorable to me and also about the king's words which he had spoken. Then he said, let us rise and build. So they put their hands to the good work. Once they heard about this, once they heard God was in this, they got right to work. They didn't waste any time. They heard what God had sent them to do. They listened and they got right to work. Which leads us to chapter 3. It consists of the record of the people building the walls. That's what chapter 3 is about. It's this record of the people who are building the walls. And it was not just a couple of work crews doing the work. Everyone did their part. Everyone did their part. Each family group, uh, uh, each family or group of people rebuilt a section of the wall. Men and women, listen to this, and sons and daughters. Look at verse 12. Look at the end of verse 12. Made repairs, he and his daughters. Everybody was involved. Like I said, everybody has a part to play. Everybody was involved in rebuilding the walls. And you see throughout this chapter that these words, next to them, 
next to them, next to them, and then after him, after him, after him, after him, after him, all the way around the walls of Jerusalem. These groups of people, families, were building the walls together. Everybody's involved. And you see this, I brought this up. You've probably heard this before. Team, together everyone achieves more. It's corny, but it's true. It's synergy. If, let, me, let me help you understand what synergy is. I've done this before, but let me just remind us what synergy is. If one ox can bull, pull two tons, how many can two pull? Two plus two is what? Four, that's wrong. Not with synergy. They can pull eight. And they're, they're exactly, but they can play way more together than they, do, they can do individually. And individually together, but when you put them together, the synergy, they work together, and they can pull more than two tons, they can pull eight tons. Or more than four tons, they can pull eight tons. And that's what happens when everybody works together. Together, everyone achieves more. They achieve more because everyone did their part to accomplish the goal. Chapter three. I'm through three chapters already. This was, that's like six weeks worth right there already. Chapter four. Here we go. Nehemiah chapter four. Some people who are not of Judah, they're non-Jewish, uh, living near Jerusalem, begin to ridicule Nehemiah and the people. They're making fun of them. It's almost humorous when you read this part of Nehemiah in chapter 4, but let me just look, have you look at one of the verses, Nehemiah 4.3. Look there with me. Now, Tobiah the Ammonite was near him, and he said, even what they are building, if a fox should jump on it, he would break their stone wall. A little fox. And something's that. Can you? A little fox would break down your wall, buddy. That's stupid. That's stupid. What do you guys think you're doing? Look what you're. This is a waste of time. And this is their attitude. And they're saying all these things, and they're ridiculing. And opposition is coming against their building of the wall. So how do Nehemiah and the people respond to the ridicule? They just say, "You're right. We're, we quit. This fox is going to knock down our wall." No. What do they do? Look what they do. It says in verse 4 that they pray. They pray, God, help us. Help us accomplish what you have before us. They pray. Then they kept working. Opposition, then the opposition organizes in, in, in near the middle of chapter 4. Um, they, they, people pray some more. They take action. Half of the people worked, and half of the people stood by with swords. Bring it on, because we're keeping working. You're not stopping us. You can keep your foxes, and if you've got dinosaurs over there, bring them on. Whatever you got, we're ready to go. And some of it said did both, with a sword in one hand and a brick in the other. They laid another brick on. They were stopping for nothing. They prayed, and they kept working. Chapter 5. There's a food shortage. So not only is there an opposition without, uh-oh, there's some problems from within. There's a food shortage. People had, some people had grain. Some people didn't. So some people mortgaged their fields and they mortgaged their houses to get the grain. Others borrowed money from their Jewish brothers. And some of these real nice Jewish brothers did what? They gave unbearable, unfair interest rates to their brothers and sisters. Yeah, you can pay me back. It's like 95.6% interest. I mean, that's what was going on here. Some of them were selling their own children to slavery to repay their debts to their own brothers and sisters. Here we see opposition that, to, to the work at hand because there's conflict from within the people of Judah. So what did Nehemiah do with this opposition? He confronted it. He called the people to repent. 
Are you kidding me? We're here doing a great work of God and you're going to treat each other like this? You see this in the New Testament happen too. But this is what's happening here. And, and what happens is they repent and follow Nehemiah's example for generosity uh, that he was so generous to the brothers and sisters. He was just giving people stuff that, had, that were hurting. Well, chapter 6, verses 1 through 14 show the opposition from the enemies living outside of Jerusalem increases. It increased to the point they, were, they conspire to kill Nehemiah. We're going to get rid of this guy. And Nehemiah responds with prayer again. And he stood firm against his enemies and he confounded their conspiracy. He calls them. Oh, you're trying to trick me. Forget it. I'm moving on. Then he and the people get back to work. Look now at verse, uh, chapter 6, verse 15. So the wall was completed on the 25th of the month of Yule. In, the, in 52 days. They completed rebuilding of the wall in 52 days. Now there's a debate as to how far it was around the walls of Jerusalem this time. And we're not going to get into that debate. But possibly, maybe even probably, it was 2.5 miles around the walls. And the walls were 40 feet high and 8 feet thick. And even the conservative estimates are amazing of how big the walls were, how great this compass was. In 52 days, they worked together. Together, everyone achieves more, right? And they rebuilt the walls. And whatever they were, we know that to rebuild the walls is an amazing accomplishment based, and, and we know it also is an amazing accomplishment, no matter how big, big the walls were, exact numbers. Look at verse 16. We got testimony how amazing this accomplishment was. It says, when all their enemies heard of it, and all the nations surrounding saw it, they lost their confidence, for they recognized that this, was, this work had been accomplished with the help of God. They said, this can only be explained by God. It was an amazing accomplishment. In 52 days, these walls would be rebuilt. Only God could do this, and even their enemies had to say, you know what, you're right. And they lost heart. God's involved. I, I don't care if you got a sword anymore, you got God. And they step back. And they leave them alone, at least for the time being. Well, and then chapter 7, you have a census is taken of all the people that are there. We won't go through that. Um, and then this brings us to chapters 8 through 13. I'm going to summarize all of those chapters together. All right? Here we see Ezra reads and he teaches the word of God. The people respond. They repent. They obey God's word. And a revival breaks out in Jerusalem. that hadn't been seen in Hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years. Probably till the days of Josiah. Since the days of Josiah. Amazing. Was God interested in the physical walls of Jerusalem being built? Yes, he was. We, just, we talked about it because it resulted in the people being preserved through this time so that the Savior would come through this remnant of people. It was important. He was also interested in the walls being rebuilt because it pointed to the people back to him and his word. And a spiritual rebuilding was taking place. God made a promise. And we've seen that in Nehemiah. That he uses people to carry out his plan to fulfill his promise of the Messiah. And he's still fulfilling the promise to redeem his people from sin. And he plans to accomplish this completely. It's going to be done. I mean, look at the track record. He's going to do exactly what he said. And there will come a day that, will no longer, that his people will no longer even be in the presence of sin. And all this work will be done. 
And part of the plan is that to use this church to share his messages of redemption to this world, to fulfill the mission of the church, which is to make disciples. That's part of his plan. The same principles we've seen here in Nehemiah, we as a church can apply individually and together to fulfill the mission of the church to make disciples. Isn't that good news? I mean, Nehemiah is an exciting book, isn't it? It is. And it can be that exciting around here, too. Because God, the same God that was with Nehemiah and his people, is the same God that we serve as with his people. You see, Nehemiah and the people that were with him were tools in the hand of God. Will you be a tool in the hand of God? Everyone. Mothers, fathers, sisters, brothers, children, everyone. Will you be a, a tool in the hand of God? If so, Nehemiah has taught us all a lot about how to, he uses these tools. So let's, let's look at these seven principles. I'm just going to point them out here to you. The first principle to apply in filling God's purpose that comes from the book of Nehemiah is pray. Pray. We saw all throughout, didn't we? In the beginning, he prayed. Opposition came, he prayed. Opposition from within, from without, he prayed. They prayed. The people prayed. And if we are going to be tools in the hand of God to accomplish this plan as a church, then we must be committed to pray at every turn. At every turn, we must be committed to pray. And when we pray, we are showing that we are trusting God to do something only he can do. Second, act with courage. Act with courage. We saw Nehemiah. He didn't cower, did he? Oh man, if I say something to Artaxerxes, he might take off my head. Uh, when these guys, these opposition came along, did he cower? No. He acted with courage. He stepped out because he knew it was God's plan and he acted with courage. And if we are going to be tools in the hand of God to accomplish his plan as a church, we must act with courage. Thirdly, get to work. Once Nehemiah shared the, what was going on, what did it say in 2.18? They got to work. They didn't wait around. I mean, the plan was right there reformed. Let's go. They let grass grow under their feet. And if we are going to be tools in the hand of God to accomplish the purpose for the church, we've got to get to work. Fourthly, work as a team. The people all did their part in rebuilding the walls. Everyone did their part. And if we are going to be tools in the hand of God to accomplish the purpose, we have to work as a team. We can't, we, I used to live in, in Springfield, Illinois, which is the capital of Illinois. And the joke was, is that state, that, that, that uh, was about the state workers, and there were a lot of state workers, obviously, in the capital, uh, was this, that it was summarized by watching state road workers work. One guy working, ten guys watching. That's how it was. And it seemed like, and even in lots of the state jobs, it was kind of like that. One guy works, ten guys watch. And that's not quite God's plan ever. All 11 work. All, everyone works. Together, everyone achieves more. Fifthly, expect opposition. Nehemiah had opposition at every turn, it seemed like. From without and from within. From without, it just kept coming. We, we expect that. And yet he didn't let it derail him from the work at hand. They prayed, they stood firm, they continued to work. And if we're going to be tools in the hand of God to accomplish this plan of the church, we too must expect opposition. We're promised this in 2 Timothy 3.12. Indeed, all who desire to live God's lives will be persecuted. Will be persecuted. And if we're committed to being tools in the hand of God, that means we're committed to living God's lives. And if we're committed to living God's lives, we will be 
persecuted. Expect it. Expect it. But sixthly, listen to this. Know that God is the God of the impossible. God is the God of the impossible. Know that. They built the walls in how many days? 52 days. Now that's not a promise and we're going to get this accomplished in 52 days. Don't hear that. That's a wrong application of the principle. All right? But it was amazing. And it, the 52 days is significant because it can only be explained by God. And God wants to use his people to do things that can only be explained by God so he gets the glory and they don't. He always works like that. If, it can, if we can just do it by ourselves, what are we doing? Right? Here we got this cute little plan. and we, we, got, we got it. It's a waste of time. But we're going to accomplish what God's called us to do as a church. We're going to have to depend on him. We're going to have to know that God is the God of the impossible. And he can do all that he plans to fulfill the mission of the church. And if we're going to be tools in his hand, then we must know this truth. Seventhly, last one, rely on God's word daily. The people in Nehemiah's day were confronted with the truth of God's word. When Ezra read it, he talked to them. They responded to repentance and they obeyed his word. They began relying on God's word daily. And I told you last week that I had this new system about prayer this year. And, and I asked my dad uh, how I could pray for him, he and my, my mom. And I got this response back from my dad. He texted me. He's 72 years old. He's texting Cool. All right. He's up on all that stuff. And he's got him a new iPad recently and he's rolling. All right. But he, he, he texts me back. He says, just please pray that your mom and I will be hearers and doers of the word of God. Now, that's my dad. Let me tell you about my dad. He pastored for almost 40 years, preached thousands of sermons, taught thousands of Bible studies, heard thousands probably of sermons and Bible studies, and at 72 years old, he's still asking me to pray that he will be a hearer and doer of the word. Because he understands that he must rely on God's word daily. Daily. And we must too. If we are going to accomplish what God has called us to be, if we're going to be tools in the hand of God to accomplish the purpose of his church, to make disciples, then we must be tools, we must be we rely on his word every single day. You see, it's about the gospel. It's about God's plan to redeem, to rescue people from sin. And he wants to use his people to do that. Just like he did with Nehemiah and these people. He wants to use us. Will you be a tool in the hand of God? There's lots of opportunities to get involved. And I encourage you to do that. When we dismiss, we're going to have, I'm going to ask Joshua... I'm going to Actually, Jonathan, if you be at that door, pass out those cards are sitting over there, and the cards are all over there. Tyler's going to pass out here. And if everybody would grab one of those, it's like a bookmark. You can put it in your Bible and pray for that and pray about how God would want you to be involved. But don't pray too long about how he wants you to be along. Well, six months from now, I'm still praying about how God wants me to be involved. Get to work. Find that place. Jump in. Dive in. And let's together be tools in the hand of God for his glory. Let's pray. Lord, thank you so much uh, for this time of your word. A lot of stuff, but Lord, the principles are timeless. And Lord, I pray that you would make us tools in your hand. We would rely on your strength to accomplish it. Lord, we pray that the gospel will go forth and many would come to know the Savior because of how you're using your people. Lord, thank you for our time this morning. We pray you've been pleased and been honored in Jesus' name. Amen.